You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. It's good to be back with you guys. It's good to get back into studying the Bible. And um, that's what we're all about. That's what I'm excited about. It's where I have a passion to teach the, word, uh, the, the, the Lord's Word. And as we do that, we do it because we want to get to know the Lord of the Word, right? The God of the Word is who we're trying to get to know and draw closer to. That's why we do this. And um, it's important. It's important because I'll tell you what, in today's day and age, a lot of people don't really read their Bibles and don't understand their Bibles. And so when we have an opportunity to get together and do both of those things, hey, that's awesome. And I want to be all about that. So uh, some of you got a map tonight. Some of you didn't. Uh, if you didn't get one, you might just want to get close to somebody that has one. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, if you're not, you know, it's not, not a big deal at all. But I thought it would just be helpful because we've been going through the book of Joshua and we've been talking about the different tribes and where they settled and the land that they got. And so this map shows that really well, color-coordinated for you ladies. And it has uh, all the cities of the Levites, which is what we're studying tonight, as well as the the uh, cities of refuge, and so we'll be taking a look at that map tonight, so just keep it handy while we go through our study. And, um, you know, on that note of biblical literacy, I just want to say that our guide over in Israel, he was a, a Jewish man, about my age, and he repeatedly said some things on that, tri- on that tour that we, we, he took us on to the effect that he could tell that we were actually different than most Christian groups that went over there to see the Holy Land. And uh, we were different in that we knew our Bibles. So he would say things about people and places in the Old Testament, and everybody's eyes would light up and we would know what he was talking about. And he's never had, uh, he doesn't get that very often, is what he told me. And so, uh, again, just another encouragement to be in the Word. And that's why I love, I love Calvary Chapel. That's why I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. It's because we're about the Word, and um, you know, I, I, it's my privilege. I, I love to study the Word with you guys. So all that to say, let's pray, and we'll start. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to get into the Word again tonight. We love how your Word washes us. We love how your Word renews our mind. We love how your Word, Lord, has power, spiritual power, to transform our lives, to give us hope, to speak words of promise and truth to us, Lord, that we so desperately need. Father, we live in an age where truth is really being uh, despised in so many ways. And Father, where truth is cheap, where truth is uh, whatever you want to make it. But Father, we're thankful that the Word of God is solid truth that never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever, just like you are. Thank you, Father, that you give it to us and that you give us the Holy Spirit is to guide us through it. Father, we just pray tonight that your spirit would speak to our hearts. Lord, we just pray that you would bless this time. Bless the folks that are here tonight. Lord, we all need you in different ways and in different quantities. Most of us don't even realize how much we need you. But Lord, we all need you. And I just pray that you would speak to our hearts and meet us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through the book of Joshua here on Wednesday nights. Justin filled in for me and did an excellent job, and uh, I'm very thankful, by the way, for all the guys on staff that have been filling in for me while I'm gone. It's just such a blessing to hear them using their gifts 
and uh, teaching the word and and uh, it's just it's awesome because it's also a form of discipleship for these guys. Uh, you know, as they're as they're uh, you know teaching the word themselves and and then they also. They, they pray for me better after that, you know? I mean, it, it's like they have this understanding of what it's like to be uh, giving the word out on a weekly basis, and so it's, it's, it's good all around. But I, I was really blessed by their studies as well and the things that the Lord used them to teach us. And uh, tonight, we're, we're looking at Joshua 20 and 21, and the land of the Israelites. And the Israelites have been conquering the land. Well, first they entered the land. And if you recall, way back in the beginning of Joshua, they did all that by faith. Remember that God brought them right to the banks of the flooded Jordan River? And they had to look at that roaring, rushing, huge river that they could never cross on their own. And they camped there for three days. And then the Lord, by faith, uh, had those priests walk into that river and touch that water, and it opened up for them it was a miracle. So they entered the land by faith. But not only did they enter the land by faith, the very first thing they did in the land was consecrate themselves to the Lord, right? They, they thought they were going to be fighting battles. No, the Lord's like, nope, got a different plan for you. Each one of you is going to circumcise his neighbor. And so, so a little bit different direction than what they were thinking. But again, for three days, they were laid up with fever and just totally incapable of doing anything. Talk about needing to have faith, right? Trusting the Lord to protect them. But God protected them. He made sure that nobody mobilized, nobody came down. He kept them all in their city under the fear of the dread of God. It's the power of God at work. So they entered the land by faith. They began their conquest by faith. But then everywhere they went, they conquered by faith. They, they had to believe and trust the Lord. Remember the, the very first battle, Jericho. They walked around the city seven times. And, and, and as they did so, you get the idea that, man, they're just looking at the city going, man, how are we ever going to do this? Jericho being one of the most ancient cities in the world, had a, a, a solid wall around it, and, and the inhabitants safe and secure inside, and yet God brought those walls down. Then we see them dividing the land by faith. They... They, they took the lots, remember? The lots of the tribes and the lots of the land, the apportions of the land, and they, they trusted the Lord with that. And the high priest and Joshua choosing the lots and pairing them together through faith. So you see all of these events by faith. And now that we, re- we arrive here in chapters 20 and 21, and we're going to read at the end of chapter 21 that the land has rest on all sides. So these two chapters we cover bring us to the end of the focus in Joshua that is on the land itself. And we are going to return to a focus on Joshua and his leadership and the people in the last few chapters of the book. But tonight, in accordance with what God had told Moses earlier, recorded for us in Exodus chapter 21 and Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy chapter 4 and, verse 9, uh, 4 and chapter 19, Joshua now undertakes the appointment of the cities of refuge. And that's what we're looking at uh, in, in a big, in a main, mainly tonight, is the cities of refuge. We'll talk some more about that when we pull out our map later. But as we explore this chapter, we're going to see that the Old Testament scriptures once again reveal a type or an illustration or a picture, if you will, 
that points us to the New Testament truths that are fulfilled in Christ. And the truth that we're really going to see being hammered into us tonight in in chapter 20 is that for the sinner, Christ is both a refuge and a source of freedom from guilt. Christ is a refuge and a source of freedom from guilt for the sinner. I don't know about you guys, but that's how I classify myself. I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a very great sinner, but I have a very much greater Savior. <laughs> and, and I'm thankful for that. But this, this chapter just points us to him tonight, and I want us to see that. So we kick it off in chapter 20, verse 1. I want to read the first three verses with you. It says, The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. Let's pause here for now. Before we go any further, I want us to recognize what this passage and what the whole Bible clearly teaches us about the importance of human life. God clearly, again and again, tells us in the scriptures that life, and especially human life, is sacred. You see, God, he created the universe, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the mountains, the deserts, the oceans, everything that's in them. He created all of these things, but of all that he created, he only made one thing in his image, and that's you and I. That's human beings. Therefore, human life is sacred because of that. We need to realize and recognize this, 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 how special that is. Why do I bring that up? Well, because we need to recognize that the scriptures shape our worldview. The, the, the Bible and, and what God teaches us through it is what shapes our worldview. Now, worldview is simply how we view the circumstances and events in the world around us. Take these glasses off. You're all a blur to me, right? That would be me without a worldview. But if I put these glasses back on, suddenly faces become distinguished. I can see clearly. I can distinguish between dark and light and all of the different colors. And and suddenly things are clear. That's what a worldview is to do for us. Now, the Bible gives us our worldview. and, And one of the things that we need to understand about how the Bible shapes our worldview is that life or the sanctity of life, the holiness of life, is important to God. And how does that shape us? Then, Well, it should shape what we do, what we fight for, how we vote, and how we live. You see, our world today is, a very, is heading down a slippery slope, isn't it, when it, when it comes to human life. <laughs> human life is being depreciated more and more in our day. Now, I'm talking about abortion, of course, but more than abortion, I'm also talking about, uh, or not just abortion, but the exploding growth of reproductive technology that's out there today, and a lack of clear guiding ethics. You see, uh, reproduction has always been tied to uh, the, the sexual relationship between a man and a woman, and that within, historically within the context of marriage. But today, with reproductive technology, they're taking the reproduction out of that human relationship and and putting it in a test tube. 
And, and there's a lack of ethics and guidance in that. And, and as a result, we see that human life is becoming cheap. Just recently in the news, we've heard about two different clinics that store frozen human embryos whose uh, power systems have failed. And as a result of that, literally hundreds of human beings in the form of embryos passed away. And yet, many news agencies didn't, didn't even say anything about it. There are hundreds of thousands more of frozen human embryos, as well as frozen human reproductive cells, male and female, awaiting whatever use might come of them all over the United States. God knows what will become of those frozen human beings. He knows. And only he can sort through the mess that we humans have made of things. But my point here is that in Scripture, God continually values life. He alone sets the precedent for the value of a human being. You don't have a right to change that. I don't have a right to change that. All we can do is recognize it and live our life accordingly with our worldview. So we need to do the same. We need to realize that our votes count. We need to be voting into office candidates that value human life. We need to realize that, that the way that we live our lives, we need to value human life and, and, and make sure that we share those values uh, in, in, in a loving way with the people that are around us that are Christians and are growing in their faith as well. Now, we've, we've already studied about these cities of refuge uh, from a technical standpoint, more in Numbers chapter 35, the last book that we, or actually two books ago. But I want to give us a brief refresher so that we're all on the same page tonight. But let's read the next few verses uh, where we see the concept of the cities of refuge. Verse 4 says, And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall, make, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. So let's pause right here. The basic concept then of these cities of refuge is that they're a safe place. They're a safe place for a person who had accidentally killed another human being that they could flee to. That city provided asylum to the, ref- or to the fugitive by sheltering them and protecting them until a trial could be held to determine whether or not he was guilty or innocent. Now, the city elders... What they would do is they would come down to the gate. Often there was already a city elder in the gate. That was one of the things that um, was really cool about my trip to Israel is we visited a city called Lamesh or Dan where the, the tribe of Dan migrated to in the book of Judges. We'll get to that next book we study. But in this city that they built, they built this intricate gate system with a courtyard in it. And there was actually a throne where the ruler of the city would sit down in the gate of the city, and where he would hear different cases. He would hear the things that were being presented to him, and he would make a judgment on them. 
as well as collect taxes, as well as check people in, you know, and, and make sure that, you know, everybody was there for peaceful reasons. So all of this would happen in the gate of the city. And so the city elders would come down to the gate and they would hold a trial. And if the death had occurred accidentally without intent, in other words, then that man would be allowed to stay there in the city of refuge without fear of harm without fear of revenge from that dead man's relatives. Again, the Old Testament here revealing to us the importance and the sacredness of human life by the laws uh, regarding the taking of a life. Now, the reason that these these cities were going to be distributed throughout Israel on both sides, as we'll see on the map, was to make them easily accessible. And, And there was actually, in the time of the rabbis, there was a yearly event that took place where the rabbis would, in, in Israel, they would go and they would make sure that the roadways to these cities of refuge were clear. They would make sure that the roads were clear, that they were in good shape. Why? Because they recognized that God valued human life, even in this case of, of you know, an inadvertently taking of a life. And they, they wanted to make sure that this guy had a chance or this person would have a chance to make it to safety. So this slayer, or this person that killed inadvertently, he needed to find asylum immediately. Why was that? It was because of this other person called the Avenger of Blood. Sounds like a good name for a death metal band or something, you know? Slayer, Avenger of Blood, you know? (laughs) But the Avenger of Blood was the person appointed by the family to go and to take the life of the one that had taken a life from their family. Now, in Israel, you have to understand that the families, they had this concept that their family was very valuable. And it was valuable to the fabric of society. It was knit in to the, all the, the, you know, to their tribe and then their tribe to the other tribes and into the nation. So every family would have appointed someone that was like somebody that would take revenge if their family was wronged. And so this avenger of blood would seek to kill that person that killed his family member, for the harm that was done to them. And so this law that God established, it really was to keep there from being blood feuds. You ever heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys in West Virginia? Okay, same sort of thing. In order to keep these families from totally annihilating each other, God sets up these laws that instead of terminating in the extinction of a family, it would end in a legal trial. So it served a humanitarian purpose. In verse 6, we see the provision for freedom for the one that could make it to this city of refuge. In verse 6, and he shall dwell in that city, the person that, that made it there. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. And then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled. So listen, the taking of a life imposed guilt on that person. And that guilt could not be paid for by any means other than death. Now the death of the high priest, even if he died of just natural causes over the course of his life, that served to pay the price of the required penalty for that man's guilt. So one man had to die in the place of another. I hope that you're connecting the dots and realizing that this is the type that points us to Jesus Christ. You see, in, according to Exodus chapter 28, 
During his lifetime, the high priest, he served as, as, as the one that would bear the sins of the entire nation of Israel. He would take the sins of the people upon him when they came to the tabernacle and they sacrificed for their sins. And then on the Day of Atonement, of course, he would uh, be you know, exonerated or, or he would be atoned for. Now, after the death of the high priest, though, the one who was guilty of manslaughter or inadvertently killing somebody, he was then free to leave that city and to return to his home without fear from the avenger of blood. Why was that? Because his guilt had been atoned for. The high priest had died. When the high priest died, that meant he was free. He was free. He no longer had to carry that guilt. That's an amazing picture of what Jesus Christ, the high priest, has done for you and for every believer who inadvertently sins. Man, I sin all the time. <laughs> and and we, we are inadvertent sinners, all of us. This is good news for us. You see, this situation here in the Old Testament, it looks forward to the day when Jesus Christ would die for the sins of the whole world. And he would remove our sin and guilt once and for all for every person who trusts in him. For every person who looks to Jesus and says, you died for me. You're the son of God. I believe in you. I believe in your death. And he removes the sin of that person through faith. Later on in this chapter, in verse 9, we see that this provision of freedom is available not just for the Israelites, but for any foreigner that lived in the land. And that's good news too. That's the truth of Christianity. That any person can receive forgiveness of sin, the removal of guilt, and eternal life through trusting in Jesus Christ's death on the cross for them. Now, the six cities that are listed for us in the second part of chapter 20, starting there in verse 7, read it with me in your Bible. It says, So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is, in, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. So I want to show you guys a map, and you guys have this in your hands, but I'm going to get my highly lethal mouse pointer from Drew Little's household. We don't have any cats in here, do we? Because they might chase this around. But I want to show you guys. So basically, here you've got down here Hebron. That's a city of refuge. Then here in the middle of the country, you've got Shechem. And then up at the top of the country, you've got Kadesh. And then over on the west or eastern side of the Jordan River... You've got Golan right there. You've got Ramoth Gilead right there. And then down here, you've got Bezer. Those are your six cities of refuge in the the nation of Israel uh, that were set up by Moses. You can see it a little bit better on the second map. I'll show you guys the second map. It's just black and white, no color. So you've got Hebron down here, Shechem in the middle, Kadesh up there. And then over on the uh, eastern side, Golan. 
Ramoth, Gilead, and Bezer. And you can see how they're spread out there so that they're easily accessible for anybody in the country who uh, might have, have, have killed somebody on accident so that they could get there. We're going to start chapter 21, and I'm going to I'm not going to be reading all of the verses in chapter 21. There's just, uh, there's a lot of repetition. So I'm not going to read all the verses, but let's, let's jump into it really quickly. In verses 1 through 3, we see the blessing of giving. It says there that then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came near to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the children of Israel, And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in with their common lands for our livestock. So the children of Israel gave to the Levites from their inheritance at the commandment of the Lord these cities and their common lands. Let's pause here. Notice the pattern there. Notice that first it was God who parted the Jordan Sea. It was God who gave them victory at Jericho. It was God who gave them victory over the armies in the south, the armies in the north. It was God who basically brought them into the land and gave them their inheritance. Notice that in return, the Israelites are now giving back to God, aren't they? Now, nowhere is there a a number uh, commanded of how many cities they were supposed to give. So they're just going to give out of the generosity of their hearts back to the Lord for his servants, the Levites. You see, the Levites were those that worked in the tabernacle at that time, and they served in different capacities. And as God's servants, God had promised them, hey, I'm going to be your portion. I'm going to be your inheritance. And this is such a beautiful picture of how God provides for those that are serving him. It really is a beautiful thing to know that God promises the Levites, the tribe of the Levites, He says, hey, I'm your portion. I'm your inheritance. You don't need to worry. I'm reminded of when Peter, uh, or when Jesus Christ called Peter, the uh, apostle, when he called him to discipleship. Peter was a fisherman. And and Jesus, when he came and put that call on Peter's life, Peter knew that he was going to have to leave his family. Remember, Peter had a wife. He had probably had children. And, and, And Jesus has him put out into the lake, the Sea of Galilee there. And he says, put, put your net, cast your net on the other side. And, and, and remember what happens, he throws his net into the water and he's pulling it in and there's so many fish he can't even handle them all. And so he has to signal for his buddies to come and they all have to get these fish together. And what was the significance of that? Well, I think that Jesus was showing Peter, hey, I'm going to take care of you. Not only am I the Lord, not only am I God in the flesh, but I'm going to take care of you and your family. Because Peter is a fisherman with a net full of fish like that could have sold those and taken care of his family for months. So that's the way, that was the way the Lord was providing for Peter. The Lord provides for us as we serve him, as we, as we get, lay our lives down on his altar. He, he takes care of us. And I love that picture here. And notice that there's a blessing here. There's a blessing for the Israelites in their giving of land in their giving of the land to the, the Levites. As they gave, they were giving out of the plentitude that they had already received, right? What a beautiful picture that is. God giving to us generously, providing for us, 
And then we get the opportunity to give back to him. It's an amazing thing. It's a blessing that is built in to the faith. In verse eight, uh, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 21, verse 4 now, we pick it up. It says, Now the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites and the children of Aaron, the priest, who were of the Levites, had 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Simeon, and from the tribe of Benjamin. So the children of Aaron, the family of Aaron, the, um, they were the ones that worked in the tabernacle. Verse 5, the rest of the children of Kohath had 10 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the children of Gershon had 13 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. And the children of Merari, according to their families, had 12 cities from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, and from the tribe of Zebulun. And the children of Israel gave these cities with their common lands by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. And so that's where I'm going to stop reading here. But uh, I want to just call your attention to these different families. The, the Gershonites, they were the ones that basically um, packed up the the things that were inside the, the tabernacle and carried them. The, um, the, the children of Merari, they were the ones that carried the fabrics uh, of the, you know, the, the tabernacle that was around the outside of it. They carried all the textiles, basically. So all of these different families of the tribe of Levi had different jobs to serve the Lord. But what's cool is that when they get to the, the promised land, the, 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 the tabernacle gets set up in Shiloh, right in the center of Israel, and, and all of the Levites get basically spread out throughout the land. And, and it's God's plan, it's all part of God's plan to provide his servants located in, in easily reachable locations all throughout the city. Why did he do that? Well, because these Levites were tasked by the Lord to be teachers of the law. They were to be teaching the law to the Israelites. And they were also to be those that were uh, offered sanctuary where people could come and they could ask questions, they could pray, they could, they could basically, uh, uh, it was like a little ministry center wherever these Levites were scattered throughout the land. And so it's really cool. God had a plan for them that in the cities that he was going to distribute, these 48 cities all throughout this, the land, they were to be in contact with the people. And it's another great lesson for, for those of us that, uh, we, we know that the Lord is uh, using us, or wants us to be used salt and light in the world. He sends us out, doesn't he? And so the church is the huddle. We've talked about this lots of times. This is halftime. We get the game plan here, but then we break, and we go out, and we, we mix it up with the people, just like the Levites would have done, all through the land, salt and light. And that's what, that's what God's plan is. I love it. I want to wrap us up tonight just by looking at Joshua chapter 21, verse 43 through 45. Last part of the chapter there. And, and the reason I'm not reading those verses, just so you know, is basically all it's doing is it's listing all of the cities that it talked about in, in verses 4 through 8. And I just, I'm sorry, but I, I'm too tired to read them. So you can read them on your own. It's a great read. <laughs> Joshua 21, verse 43 through 45. 
So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. And here it is, pay attention to this verse. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. You should remember that verse if you were here on Sunday. (laughs) Pastor Drew closed his sermon out with that very same verse. And Pastor Drew, of course, was talking about the promises of God and how those promises are so linked in to faith and to prayer and to what we know we can receive from God because if, if, the, if, if the scriptures are clear about the importance of human life, they're equally just as clear, if not more clear, in the fact that God is not a liar and that God will fulfill his word. That we can take his word to the bank. We can stand on it. We can, we can lay our lives down on his word knowing that it will come to pass. Just as it says right here. These three verses at the end of the book of Joshua, or I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 21, they form a, a chiasmus in the Masoretic text. And I know I've talked a little bit about chiasmus on Sunday mornings a couple weeks ago. It's a, it's a form of, it's a literary form that's really just to emphasize a point. And, and they'll make point A, they match it to point B, and then they take point B and they match it to point A and they just repeat the whole thing. Well, that's what's happening right here in these three verses at the end of this chapter. There's no less than six times in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, that is emphasizing the word all. And really, it's pointing to all that God did for Israel. The faithfulness of God. He gave them all the land that he promised to their fathers. He gave them rest all around according to all he had sworn that not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a single word of any good thing which the Lord promised. All of God's promises to Israel were fulfilled. Six times in the Hebrew text that word all is being emphasized. And what is it pointing to? It's pointing to the power of God, the strength of God, the wonderful majesty of God in that he is going to, he wins. His plan is going to (laughs) happen. Nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing. Not even you messing up. Not even me messing up and being a loser sometimes. Even in our sinfulness, we cannot thwart God's wonderful plan. And I praise God for that truth. The chapter ends there on that high note, with the focus being on God's faithfulness. But listen, we know that that's not how the story ends. We, we know that if you continue to read, although we wish it ended right there, if you continue to read, we know that the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. The Bible doesn't lie. The Bible just reports the facts. And so after Joshua comes Judges, right? And the book of Judges is a book about the failures of Israel to live in the victory that God brought them to. And it begs the question for us, well, which is it? Is it the conquest of the land complete or did they really fail 
in all of it? Was it a, a complete conquest or was it just a partial conquest? And it seems that even from the beginning, there's this aspect of disobedience. There's a lack of faith that kept Israel from completely possessing their land. On the grand scale, yeah, they controlled the land. But on a smaller scale, we know that there was many failures by the individual tribes to defeat the enemy, to totally wipe him out. Again, this is a contrast that illustrates two truths that we see in the New Testament. The first truth is that God has the power to do what he says, and he will do it, and effectively he will complete his plan for the greatest good and the salvation of men. The Bible clearly teaches us that. But there's this second truth that contrasts that, and that is that the sin and the suffering of this fallen world and a fallen nature, it's a real thing. It's a real thing, and we struggle with it. Both of these realities represent different sides of an unresolved conflict, you guys. And they're both serving as reminders. This is a conflict that's raging in me. It's a conflict that's raging in you. God's power, God's promise, God's salvation, yes. Yet, I live in a, a body with a fallen nature, and I wrestle with the flesh. I struggle with it. So both of these realities, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, the answer is in our text tonight. We need to run to the city of refuge, which is Jesus Christ. We need to find in Christ rest and peace. In Jesus, we're going to find the forgiveness and the freedom from guilt that we so desperately need. We're going to find the love and the assurance We're going to find the security. We're going to find the acceptance. We're going to find freedom and forgiveness. But we have to realize that he did something for us. The only way that that will mean anything to us is if we realize that he gave his life as a substitute. If we realize that he took all of our sin and the guilt that we carry around, he took it. He paid the price for it. And so you can let it go. He died in your place, just like the high priest. When he died, that, 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 that manslayer, he was free. You and I, we are set free through the death of Jesus Christ. And so tonight, if you are in Christ, hey, you're complete. You're safe, and you're free to live for him and to love on him. And that's what we're going to do tonight, but I'd like to close with this verse Psalm chapter 91 and verse 2. It's on the screen here behind me. It says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. I'll read that one more time. It's just such a beautiful verse. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. Listen, will you do that tonight? We... I love Wednesdays because it's, it's not as rigid as a Sunday morning is. So after this, this message is over, we're going to spend some time just worshiping tonight. And if, if Justin and Aaron want to come on out, they can. But uh, I, I want to remind us that, that this is telling us that we have a choice to make. <laughs> we can take our chances with the avenger of blood. We can stay outside of that city of refuge if we want to risk it. We can try to fight the battle on our own. 
But inevitably, guys, we don't have what it takes. And it's just going to end bad for everyone involved. But if we'll make that choice to run to the city of refuge that God has set up for you and for me, which is Jesus Christ, and we'll take shelter in him tonight, hey, we're going to find all that we need. We're going to find what we need in him. But it's your choice. You have to make it. No one can make it for you. But I, I implore you, I beg you, to make that choice, to run to Jesus tonight, to spend this time, as we close our service tonight, just worshiping, to spend this time in that special fellowship with the Lord and just say, Lord, I, I'm, I know what I am. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm like that manslayer. I've inadvertently sinned against you, and Lord, I need you. You're the only one that can make me right. You're the only one that can give me the peace that I so desperately long for. You're the only one that can make me secure and set me free. Let's pray.